Welcome back to DeepMind, the podcast with me, Hannah Fry. In this series, I've been meeting the people who are hard at work on the technologies of the future. And whenever I talk to people here, it usually isn't long before they mention three magic letters. A lot of discussions at DeepMind end with, how are you defining AGI? On the path to AGI, we will create fabulous technologies. What if the application that we want to solve is AGI? AGI. 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 Which stands for Artificial General Intelligence. It's the ultimate aim that drives so much of DeepMind's work. Like other abstract ideas, love, justice, success, it means something slightly different depending on who you ask. For some, AGI signifies a human-level general intelligence. Others in the field are more dismissive of AGI. One notable researcher likened a belief in AGI to a belief in magic. In previous episodes, we've explored some of the tangible stuff. Capabilities such as language, cooperation and physical intelligence that researchers believe could help take us towards AGI. But in this episode, I want to spend some time digging into what's meant by AGI itself. What actually is it? What will it look or feel or sound like? What will it accomplish? Is a future with AGI even desirable? And if so, what is the best way of getting there, if indeed there is only one way? Lots and lots to answer in this episode five, The Road to AGI. If anyone can lay claim on defining AGI, it is DeepMind's co-founder and chief scientist, Shane Legg. Back in the halcyon days of the dot-com boom, Shane worked at a New York startup called WebMind, where they were attempting to create human-level intelligence on the internet. WebMind's founder was the AI researcher Ben Goetzel, and when, almost a decade later, Goetzel was compiling a book of essays about AI that could excel beyond a few narrow tasks, Shane put forward a title. I suggested to him, well, if we're interested in powerful AIs that are really general, we should just call it Artificial General Intelligence, AGI. And so I proposed that to him, and he put that as the title of his book, and it sort of caught on after that. That same year, in 2007, Shane elaborated on the concept further. In a famous paper, he defined intelligence as an agent's ability to achieve goals in a wide range of environments. Would you make any modifications today? I wouldn't modify it, but I would look at adding and extending. The question is, how do you go from this super general theoretical notion to something that's more like intelligence in the world that we happen to live in and maybe like more like, say, human intelligence in that world? But for Shane, AGI won't simply be a replication of human intelligence inside a machine. I think there are levels of generality and capabilities beyond what humans have, and you know, that shouldn't be surprising to us. I mean, you know, birds might fly fast, but you know, machines can fly faster. Elephants can lift heavy things with their trunks, but you know, a crane can lift something much heavier. So I, I do expect that there will be machines that will be able to know more, remember more, reason more deeply than humans. It's a tantalising prospect. An intelligent, versatile, problem-solving system called AGI that does the things humans can only better. But if that sounds like science fiction to you, well, you wouldn't be the only one. 
if you go back 10, 12 years ago, the whole notion of AGI was lunatic fringe. People would literally roll their eyes and just walk away. You um, had that happen? Yeah, multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> people you respected? Yeah, people in the field would just literally roll their eyes and just walk away. Have you had the chance to meet them since? Um, I have met quite a few of them since. There have even been cases where some of these people applied for jobs in deep mind years later. But yeah, it was a field where... No, there were little bits of progress happening here and there, but powerful AGI and rapid progress seemed like it was very, very far away. But given the rapid progress in AI over the past 10 years, in everything from understanding biology to the game of Go, for some at least, AGI no longer seems such an outlandish idea. Do people still roll their eyes? Uh, every year it becomes less. <laughs> For over 20 years, Shane has been quietly making predictions of when he expects to see AGI. I always felt that somewhere around 2030-ish, it was about 50-50 chance. I still feel that seems reasonable. If you look at the amazing progress in the last 10 years, and you imagine in the next 10 years we have something comparable, maybe there's some chance that we will have an AGI in a decade. And if not in a decade, well, I don't know, say three decades or so. And what do you think it will look like? It could take many forms. Because by definition, the G in AGI is about generality. It can deal with language, it can reason, it can do some mathematics, it can program computers, it could write some poetry. And it could take multiple different forms. It could be a service that you go to, sort of like a Google or something, where you can consult the AI system about something. It could be embodied in a robot at some point in the future. Or it could be, say, in the fabric of a city. And it could be something that many different people interact with at the same time. But if AGI could take a variety of forms, how will Shane recognise it when he sees it for the first time? What I imagine is some sort of simulated 3D environment or something rather, and being able to talk to the agent, the agent can talk back, and really seeing that the agent is able to solve novel problems that it hasn't seen before to a level that is comparable to that of a human. And so it's about that ability to use its understanding of its world and its previous experiences with other problems and draw parallels and analogies with other things that, to me, will be the point at which I go, OK, maybe we have an AGI here. You'll notice that what Shane is describing is an AGI in simulation, as opposed to in real life. And you might be wondering, does that count? Some people won't accept that until it's actually running around the real world. I think simulated environments can be made sufficiently complex that the ability to solve novel problems that the agent hasn't seen before in fairly rich simulated environments, I think that'll be enough. And then we'll be able to cross the barrier to real world. I mean, we know some of the algorithms that we use work in the real world. So a lot of the vision algorithms, a lot of the control algorithms can control real robots and so on. Some of those aspects that you described as expecting an AGI to have, so language and embodied intelligence, mm -hmm. there are really sophisticated agents that can do each of those already. Is that the route to AGI, do you think? There are algorithms that can do very particular things, but doing them together in a really coordinated way seems to be a lot harder. There seems to be something missing around the ability for algorithms to generalize in 
quite deep ways that you might regard as conceptual. So an algorithm can see a pattern in some data where people with certain results in their blood tend to have a disease versus not have a disease and so on. And they can even go further than that to things like recognizing you know, dogs versus cats. Where they fall down, though, is when you have something that's more abstract and conceptual in nature. They tend to do somewhat simple generalization over vast, vast amounts of data. And the result is very effective. But if you really try to push them to generalize in some way that's outside of any data they will have seen, often it's something that a human can do, but they can't do it. We'll be exploring AGI further, including the biggest opportunities and dangers of this technology, in our final episode when I sit down with DeepMind CEO Demis Hassabis. For now, though, a group of researchers think they have found a pathway that could eventually lead all the way to AGI. Remember this? AlphaGo became the first computer champion at the game of Go, and it was the major result for artificial intelligence. And you won the sweepstake. And I won the sweepstake. <laughs> In season one, we told a story that has now become something of an AI legend. In 2016, a worldwide audience of over 200 million people watched as a DeepMind system called AlphaGo beat human world champion Lee Sedol at the notoriously difficult board game of Go. The machine learning technique on which AlphaGo was based is known as reinforcement learning, and we've already met it several times in this season. It's the same idea that's being used to train AIs to cooperate with each other and robots to walk around. But David Silver, the principal scientist behind AlphaGo, whose voice you heard in the clip just there, believes the technique could prove even more powerful still. In the last few years, reinforcement learning has come of age to something which is really starting to see at-scale applications in the real world. As a result, people are ready to take seriously the potential of reinforcement learning to really grapple with some of the big questions of AI. To recap, reinforcement learning is distinct from the other main types of machine learning out there, namely... Supervised learning, where there's a teacher that tells the machine what to do. It says, this is the right thing to do in this situation, and then the machine has to try and replicate that decision. Those mildly annoying I-am-not-a-robot tests you have to complete online are an example of supervised learning. Every time you identify a traffic light or a motorbike in an image, you're helping to train an image recognition algorithm to classify those types of images automatically. Then there's unsupervised learning, where there's no feedback at all from human, and what the system can do is to kind of figure out patterns in its data but it doesn't really know what to do with those patterns. It doesn't give it a goal or any kind of feedback whatsoever. A quintessential example of unsupervised learning is clustering. Like the algorithms that group photographs according to type. Photos taken in nature or at a party or at a sporting event, say. And then there's reinforcement learning. The human gives feedback saying good or bad in the form of a reward. So the goal of reinforcement learning is to try and maximise this reward signal. This reward signal is just a positive number, a plus one, which tells the algorithm that the action it has just performed is conducive to its overall goal. 
Doina Precup, a renowned researcher who specialises in this technique, explained to me how she made use of it in her everyday life. I remember when our kids were young, we were trying to get them to pick up their toys and put them in the toy chest. And so we instituted a reward system by which there was a special treat, a small chocolate if they picked up their toys. And so I think we can actually train very complex behaviors by using these rewards. We'll come back to Doina's AI-based life hacks and some of the pitfalls with reward training a little bit later on. But back to the machines. So far, DeepMind has created lots of individual reinforcement learning agents that specialise in particular domains, such as AlphaGo in the game of Go. But now, they're starting to develop more multi-purpose reinforcement learning agents. After the history-making match against Lisa Dole, the next step for the team was to build Alpha Zero, another board game player, but one that learnt by playing different versions of itself rather than being trained on data from professional matches. And then DeepMind built MuZero. What we did in MuZero was we asked, what if our agent is approaching some completely new environment like a game it's never seen before, and it just has to figure out the rules of the game for itself. And in doing so, understand its, its environment in a sufficiently powerful way that it can actually succeed in winning the game or in achieving its rewards in the real world. An AI that can pick up the rules of the game for itself could, in theory, excel at any new gaming scenarios. But crucially, as we'll find out later in this episode, could be thrown into a real-world situation and teach itself how to be successful. When it was tested out on the games of Go, Chess and Shogi, MuZero achieved superhuman performance, despite never seeing the rules of the game. Each time we take away a bit of knowledge from the system, we provide it with a new opportunity for it to actually learn and figure out something for itself. That's so mad that everything we tell it, we're just getting in the way. That's right. Now, it's one thing for a reinforcement learning algorithm, or agent, to teach itself the relatively fixed rules of a board game like chess or Go. But it's quite another for it to figure out the rules that govern the messy real world that we live in. If you just think of a simple example, we've got an agent and it's going out into the rain and it wants to know how to keep dry. If we try to describe to our agent the pattern by which raindrops fall and all the other complexities of its world, we're quickly just going to become unstuck. If you want to build an agent that aims to stay dry, it would be extremely difficult to build an entire model of its environment. The water cycle, atmospheric circulation, historic precipitation data, etc. Instead, MuZero zeroes in on the things that really matter to achieve its aim. Maybe the agent needs to understand that if it puts its umbrella up, that will keep it dry. But it doesn't need to understand the pattern of raindrops that fall on top of the umbrella. I guess the agent also needs to know that if it's really gale force winds and it tries to use an umbrella, then it won't work to stop it from getting wet. And maybe a rain mac would be better. Is part of the idea here that there's nuance in the real world and that by instructing agents on what to do, you're kind of trampling over any of that opportunity for subtle understandings that are context-specific? Exactly. 
Rather than getting a total understanding of what's going on around it, MuZero just focuses on the bits that are really important for planning ahead. How good is its current position? How good was the last action it took at achieving its aim? And which action is the best to take next? It doesn't matter if the system builds a model of the world which is completely crazy. You know, maybe it thinks that raindrops magically appear and make the umbrella wet. That would be fine as long as it gets everything right in terms of the three quantities we care about. MuZero is more than just an algorithm that knows when to step outside with an umbrella. David and his colleagues believe it could also be a milestone on the way to AGI. Last year, David co-authored a provocatively titled paper called Reward is Enough. He believes reinforcement learning alone could lead all the way to artificial general intelligence. We're really arguing that all of the abilities of intelligence, from perception to knowledge to social intelligence to language, can be understood as a single process of trying to increase the rewards that that agent gets. If this hypothesis was true, it would mean that we only need to solve one problem in intelligence rather than a thousand different problems for each of the separate abilities. Take the example of a squirrel, which, in the pursuit of a single goal, collecting nuts, develops lots of different abilities in the process. Even that simple thing requires the squirrel to acquire some traits of intelligence. Doina Precup is a co-author of the Reward is Enough paper. So obviously, physical ability to be able to climb trees, to access nuts, but also social intelligence, because if a squirrel is hiding nuts somewhere, it would want to camouflage them from other squirrels, right? So it has to reason about what other squirrels might think. It has to remember where it's put the nuts. And they also have to plan ahead. During the winter, there's no nuts. And so the squirrel in in the fall, in some sense, has to get the nuts ahead of time. So all of these traits of intelligence can actually come from the squirrel optimizing a particular reward function. You can see how this nutty reward might work for things like physical prowess. The squirrel developing its muscles and becoming more agile as it strives for the tastiest nuts. But what about something like language? As we've heard in this series, current language models are not based on reinforcement learning algorithms, but on a different type of neural network known as a transformer. Could a reward-based algorithm work here? Essentially, yes. The hypothesis is the possibility to actually learn language in a very different way. In the same way that it would be helpful to learn what the word duck means, because if you don't duck and a a ball hits you or a rock hits you on the head, you will experience a negative reward. Or that you might learn that it's helpful to ask for help and someone will come to your assistance. And now you might take that further and imagine that more sophisticated sentences might lead to someone actually assisting you in more complicated ways and helping you to work collaboratively to farm for food. I was intrigued as to how far David was willing to push his hypothesis. Do you sort of find yourself looking at your everyday life as goal optimising processes and constantly like looking out for what the reward is that you're trying to optimise? <laughs> I've got to come clean. I do set myself goals and say, right, that's my reward. I'm going to go for it. At the same time, I think the big picture of people 
you know, is a very messy one that is really hard for us to explain our day-to-day actions in terms of, oh, right now I'm optimizing this reward. I don't think it's quite like that. I think it's more like there's an overarching goal for intelligence, maybe something which evolution bestowed our brains to try and achieve, you know, maybe we don't like pain, for example. And all the rest of it, all these things which from moment to moment we're trying to achieve something, those are like sub-goals. And all of those sub-goals we pick, like, what am I going to work on next? What am I going to eat for dinner tonight? These are all somehow in service of our overall evolutionary-driven goals. What do you think is the overall goal for humans? It's a really profound question. I mean, philosophers have been asking this since day dot, and I won't be able to give you a satisfying answer. I suppose in a way I'm sort of asking you what's the meaning to life? (laughs) I think you are, and that's why it's a difficult (laughs) question. Well, what can I say? You come for a podcast about artificial intelligence and end up speculating on the meaning of life. You're welcome. But we digress. Back to the machines again. Is this a game changer? I guess time will tell. One of the stories of AI for the past 60 years or so has been that people have made progress in particular niches, right? Computer vision has gotten a lot better. Language processing has gotten a lot better. It's still very, very hard to integrate all these things into one agent. But if we train an agent in one way by maximizing the reward function, then all of these things might emerge naturally in one agent and be connected to each other from the get-go. But not everyone at DeepMind is convinced that reinforcement learning on its own will be enough for AGI. Here's Raya Hansel, Director of Robotics. The question I usually have is, where do we get that reward from? It's hard to design rewards, and it's hard to imagine a single reward that's so all-consuming that it would drive learning everything else. I put this question about the difficulty of designing an all-powerful reward to David Silver. I actually think this is just slightly off the mark, this question, in the sense that maybe we can put almost any reward into the system, and if the environment's complex enough, amazing things will happen just in maximizing that reward. Maybe we don't have to solve this what's the right thing for intelligence to really emerge at the end of it kind of question, and instead embrace the fact that there are many forms of intelligence, each of which is optimizing for its own target. And it's okay if we have AIs in the future, some of which are trying to control satellites, and some of which are trying to sail boats, and some of which are trying to win games of chess. And they may all come up with their own abilities in order to allow that intelligence to achieve its end as effectively as possible. The Reward is Enough paper focuses on a long-term vision of how reinforcement learning could lead to AGI. But in the shorter term, the current generation of algorithms are far from perfect. One of the notorious problems with this technique is known as the credit assignment problem. It's sometimes difficult for the algorithm to work out which of its actions led to a particular reward. Let's go back to Doina and her AI life hacks. Because of the time lag between Doina's children tidying away their toys and receiving their reward, an after-dinner treat, it took a while for them to make a connection between being tidy and eating chocolate. And when they did make that connection, they figured out a way to hack the reward function. They got into this loop where they would take everything out of the toy chest and put it back in, and then take it all out and put it back in. A pretty clear indication that they very fast figured out how to optimize for the signal. So we had to redevise what the signal was in order to make sure that we didn't get this kind of behavior. 
Part of the reason for this credit assignment problem is that current reinforcement learning algorithms lack a skill known as temporal abstraction, the ability to consider the potential repercussions of actions over long timescales. This is a capability that humans do have. Let's say somebody's contemplating going to graduate school. You really have to compress in your mind this time period of a few years and try to understand what the situation might be at the end of that, you know, what might be the rewards that are going to happen, you know, maybe you'll have a better job and so on. That's a different level of planning than, let's say, grocery shopping for next week. But the algorithm for doing the planning actually can be the same algorithm. And if you can have it work at a higher level of abstraction, then actually this problem of forward planning and also credit assignment over that long period of time can be solved. No one yet knows the answers here. No one knows how to get to AGI or if reinforcement learning will indeed be enough. But this is the process of science, hypothesis, conjecture, experiments and debate. Here's Shane Legg again. I think in practical terms, you're more likely to make progress in artificial intelligence by having other kinds of learning algorithms in there. So you would have some reinforcement learning going on, you'd have some supervised learning and other things. There's no doubt that reinforcement learning is part of the solution. I'm just not sure that it is the only solution. Human beings and animals as well have a lot of different types of learning that they are doing all the time. And I think it just makes sense that a learning system would also take advantage of these different sources of feedback. It's certainly the case that reinforcement learning algorithms, as they stand, are not capable of maximising arbitrary rewards in complex environments. Many of the issues that we face, they're hard issues, and yet they're not philosophically intractable issues. And so I do believe that at some point, when communities across the world put our minds to tackling this problem, we will find the solutions. But of course, this is a hypothesis. I cannot offer any guarantee that reinforcement learning algorithms do exist, which are powerful enough to just get all the way there. And yet, the fact that if we can do it, it would provide a path all the way to AGI should be enough for us to try really, really hard. Whichever road it takes to get there, there is a palpable belief at DeepMind that artificial general intelligence is coming down the track sooner rather than later. And along the way, all sorts of new algorithms will emerge that can be usefully applied right now to problems in the real world. Remember our friend MuZero? You'll recall that what is particularly special about this reinforcement learning agent is that it's earned its stripes winning games and solving practical problems. Jackson Brochier is a product manager in the Applied team, which specialises in finding real-world uses for AI. Real-world problems are messy and hard to explicitly define, and so MioZero gives us the capability to put an agent into an environment, give it an explicit goal, and it can then plan and search through that environment to find optimal strategies to achieve that goal. MuZero works best when a real-world problem shares similarities with the board games its predecessors were designed for. There needs to be a right answer, a way to win, as it were. There needs to be lots and lots of data available for it to train on. 
and the algorithm is best suited to problems with a vast number of possible moves or actions that it would be impossible to search through one by one. The question is, what kinds of real-world problems might be suitable for such an AI? One of the applications we've been looking at is video compression. A vast amount of traffic on the internet is actually taking the form of video. So if you can actually compress videos more effectively, you can save a huge amount of traffic and therefore energy and cost. To put this in context, it's estimated that over 80% of global internet traffic is consumed by streaming and downloading video. That might be a bingeable TV drama, a video call with a colleague, an educational seminar, or, I don't know, maybe something a bit less highbrow. The point is that whenever someone uploads a video to the internet, the file gets compressed or encoded to make the process of sending it more efficient. There's a balance to be struck. You want to compress the video file as much as you can while losing as little as possible in terms of quality. The quality of the video is partially determined by its bitrate. The ones and zeros that you're using to send that video across the internet. Jackson joined me on a video call between homeschooling lessons with his children, and here is how he explained it. There's an allowance that you have and how you can use those bits. And the state of the art has gotten really good at creating a lot of tricks for how to use those ones and zeros to send over the videos. So for example, if there's a part of the video that's constant throughout each section of the video, it can learn to take that section and save it and reuse it on the other side where it's sending the video. Like now I'm looking at you and you've got the background of your homeschool classroom. As it's coming to me, the algorithm would recognise that that isn't changing frame to frame and just uses that as a way to make it more efficient. Yeah, so these jellyfish in the background, they're the jellyfish of a little while ago, not the jellyfish of this moment. And so there's lots of tricks like this that we can use to make video encoding very efficient. And so this is where it's framed itself up as a great reinforcement learning problem because we can go in and essentially treat video encoding as a game. This is a strategic game of how to be as stingy as possible without compromising video quality. If MuZero splurges on bits for the frames at the start of the video, giving those static jellyfish a really high resolution, say, it might find itself in trouble later if suddenly there's more action in the video. MuZero plays this game against itself thousands of times until it arrives at the optimum spread of bits. We're seeing a little over 6% improvement in the bitrate optimization. So that directly correlates to videos that are 6% smaller being sent across the internet. A 6% saving might not sound like a lot, but scale that up to the whole of the internet, and it's quite a significant saving. There's potential for carbon savings in the energy use for transmitting video. And then I think most exciting of all is the user impacts. So we're actually bringing content to more people. So there's lots of regions where data is sold at a fixed limit. So you use up your data limit for the day and your internet shuts off. Well, if you're watching educational content, that's less of a cost that you're paying. It's especially clear in places like India and Indonesia and emerging markets, where gains here directly relates to increased content. 
while the overarching goal of artificial general intelligence hangs over pretty much everything that DeepMind is working on, using AI to solve problems in the real world is a significant focus of researchers here. Over the next episodes, we'll be taking a closer look at how AI technology is being applied to several problems, both in the science lab... What you're describing here is a potential step change in all of healthcare and medicine. That is the implication of truly understanding biology. And in our everyday lives. I said, are these the same images? They were so close, (gasps) it was remarkable. DeepMind the podcast is presented by me, Hannah Fry, and produced by Dan Hardoon at Whistledown Productions. If you're enjoying the series, we'd be grateful if you could rate the podcast and leave a review. Bye for now.